This is the coolest thing in the world to see you all here. Um, I remember when this was like a big Sunday with one service, and, and, and God just keeps blessing everybody like crazy. Um, What's funny, John and I were talking, because now that you go to two services, we still have the 8 o'clock over at Hope that I'm one of the musicians for, and uh, it was like, okay, I had my car parked strategically at the right spot so I could whip out the door, jump in the car, didn't even have to back, I just pulled straight on through and on to it. It was like, yes, and many of the lights behaved and cooperated. So... Um, we are completing a series called Confirmation for Grown-Ups. Uh, we took a look at the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Bible, the Creed, and now we're finishing up on the sacraments. About six months ago, we, we preached on baptism, so we're going to focus on communion this time around. So I'm going to be just teaching a little bit on, on what on earth is communion, and, but I want to back up first of all and just talk about the word sacrament in the first place. Isn't that kind of a weird word? I mean, when was the last time you saw sacrament in like a TV commercial, you know? You know, get a sacrament for 1995, you know, along with a Ginsu knife set, you know. Um, and and I, don't, I don't think that's quite the way it works, but uh, I want to define it. And the way I want to define it is, first of all, to go back to the time of the Reformation. This is when the church was pretty messed up. And God began to raise people up, um, some Catholics, some Protestants, to begin to kind of clean house. On the Catholic side, you had people like Teresa of Avila or Ignatius of Loyola. On the Protestant side, you had Martin Luther and John Calvin and many others like him. And there was this big debate about communion and baptism. What all about it? What's the sacrament? And in the Catholic tradition, they have seven of them. And then there was, you know, so you had that one side. Then you had some Protestants who said, no, there's no sacraments at all. Uh, that's all just a bunch of hooey. doesn't make any sense. And to this day, you might have grown up in a church like that where they said that, that there's no real sacraments at all. All there are is sort of memorial activities, and, and they wouldn't call them sacraments, they would call them ordinances. That's kind of what I grew up in. But the problem is, everybody was kind of defining it for themselves, and there was no real good definition of what anybody was talking about. So look, Luther took a stab at trying to define sacraments, and his passion was that he defined it biblically, so he wanted to say, what does the Bible have to say? Well, in order to do that, he had to back up and create another category, and it was called means of grace. Turn to your neighbor and say, means of grace. Now, what's a means of grace? We've got to figure that out, too. Luther discovered that means of grace is wherever God shows up. And particularly, wherever God's word is proclaimed, God shows up. If you were to go to the very beginning of the Gospel of John, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and all things were made through him. So God's very word conveys God's very presence. Now that's kind of mystical, spooky, and, and, and the Bible doesn't really worry about the mechanics, it worries more about the promise. So whenever you read the Bible, God shows up. Whenever you hear the word of God in a small group, God shows up. Whenever you're having a God conversation with somebody else, God shows up. Whenever you hear preaching, God shows up. Likewise in communion, likewise in baptism, God shows up. Now, What's a sacrament then? Well, this is how Luther put it. If, if God's word is the place where he shows up, or as theologians like to say, God's real presence, I don't know, what's a fake presence, you know, counterfeit presence, you know, it's really present, really, truly, you know, but that's how they call it, you know, they got to get paid somehow. Um, but if, if God's word is the place where God shows up, Martin Luther said, well, then the sacraments, and he meant communion and baptism, are simply this, God's word plus stuff. Turn to your neighbor and say that. 
God's word plus stuff. That's a sacrament. So communion is God's word plus stuff. Baptism is God's word plus stuff. Well, what's the stuff? Well, water in baptism and bread and wine in communion. Here's another way to flip it on, uh, uh, around. In other words, communion and baptism are nothing more than sermons with visual aids. Or another way is God's word with visual aids. And we all know that when God's word is proclaimed, God shows up. Let's say that together. When God's word is proclaimed, God shows up. Hence communion, hence baptism, hence reading of scripture, preaching in a small group. When someone talks to you about Jesus, those are all places God shows up. Now what happens when God shows up? This is the cool part. He doesn't just show up and give you a hug and walk away. When God shows up, he begins to turn your life around. When God shows up, he forgives you all the junk that's in you, what the Bible calls sin. When God shows up, he offers a forever friendship that nobody can take away. And when God shows up, he begins to change your life. Those are his promises, and those are true whenever God shows up, which makes communion and baptism and preaching and reading the word of God and gathering together around his word pretty powerful stuff because when God shows up, stuff happens. Now, I want to focus a bit on communion because that's all the technical stuff. I want to now put some, some flesh to the bones. And, and so we want to look in the Bible. Why on earth communion? I mean, why would God choose bread and wine to show up? I mean, isn't that the weirdest thing? I mean, think about it. You know, we have the grape juice. That's pretty decent. But then the wine has always struck me as really funny. It's Mogan David. I mean, it, it's really bad wine. And not only that, but if you look at the bottle, it says fortified. Well, what does fortified mean? Basically, you take some corn syrup and you just pour it in. So not only could it get you drunk if you had too much, it could get you really high and you need a Ritalin, you know? I mean, it would be just bad. You know, and then the bread. Um, we have chips of all kinds. We have a loaf. We have little chips for, for gluten-free, and we have little chips that are not gluten-free and, and all kinds of weird things like that. Why do we do this? Why would God want to show up in a meal? Here's why. First of all, we have to start way at the beginning. So what I want to do, though, before we do that, is read together exactly what we heard in the reading. It's going to be on the screens. So let's go ahead and read it together. I want to just ground us in this. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Or here's what the Apostle Paul says just a little bit earlier. Uh, what we got here was Paul was writing the church in Corinth, and this was from the 11th chapter. In the 10th chapter, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is that not the sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is that not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in that one bread. And so the Bible itself talks about God showing up in the bread and wine. But again, what's the point? Why are we doing this? Well, let's head way back to the beginning of Scripture because we have to understand kind of this big old story that starts in the Old Testament and runs right into the New Testament, and communion is one of the, the big high points. The first thing we have to understand is why we were created in the first place. Why did God create us? What was the point? Here's the creator of the universe who needs absolutely nothing. Why did he create us? Very simply this, to be friends. Now, you might be thinking, that's it? That's kind of trivial, but think about the friendships you've had in your life, the really good ones that are still sticking around. 
Maybe it's your spouse or your parents or your children or just a friend that you grew up with and who's still there for you. Think of, of that friendship. There's nothing trivial about it. I mean, friends are there to be with you when everybody else leaves. As a friend of mine says, real friends show up. Friends are there to tell you the truth when nobody else will. Real friends care about you more than just to make you happy. And friends are there to walk with you in the tough times. That's the kind of friend God is. And that's what he made us to be, is to be that kind of person, literally in God's image, to do what God does. If God is that kind of friend, he's, call, he's called us to be that kind of friend to each other and back to him. Here's how it's put in the, in the Bible in the first couple chapters of Genesis. It says that we were created in God's image. And literally this, if we were to divide it up, what it means to be a friend, two things. Make life happen, which is what God did when he created everything. And then to nurture life so that it flourishes and creates more life. Think about that. And that's what he did as well as he created us. But then he gave our first parents an assignment and he said, be fruitful and multiply. So quite physically, make life happen. But then also, emotionally, make life happen. Relationally, make life happen. And then he said, and take care of the earth. So nurture life so that it flourishes and makes more life happen. And so God created us literally to partner with him in this whole beautiful project called creation. Except something went very, very wrong. So what went wrong? The bottom line is in chapter 3 of Genesis, there's this snake that, that creeps in, and he looks suspiciously like the snake in Jungle Book, if you're old enough to remember that. He even has problems pronouncing S's, so he's always telling people to trust him. And so he begins to talk to our first parents, except actually he begins with Eve. Adam, for some reason, is nowhere to be found. Oh, well, already, absentee husbands, what are you going to do? And, 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 you know, he's not helping. But what happens is there begins to be this shift, this slip, because God said, be like me in character. Be like me as a friend. And the servant said, no, no, that's not what it's like to be like God. God's holding stuff from him. You can't really trust him because he really knows what you need and he's not going to give it. And that's power and knowledge and control because, you see, if you really wanted to, you could be the gods and goddesses of your own universe. But God isn't going to let you do that because he's afraid of you. And the serpent talked our first parents into stop trusting God. And they decided instead that they wanted to be kings and queens of their own creation. And so they began to rebel so that their eyes would be open and they would have all power and knowledge and control. And the Bible says their eyes were opened all right. And they discovered that far from being the gods and goddesses they wanted to be, they became the victims of a very dangerous world, and they were very vulnerable. And when God came, and I believe he came back to redeem them and call them back into friendship, they'd have none of it because they confused God with an enemy. And they rebelled and, and became hostile. And ever since then, we've been trying to put it back together, and all we can do is make it worse. Just read history. This last century was the, was, was the bloodiest century in humanity. Hitler killed six million Jews, actually many more than that. Stalin, 12 million Russians, and we, a century before, killed 16 million Native Americans. How's that for putting it all back together? Oops. So what's God doing about it? What's he up to? If we've messed it beyond our ability to repair it, what's God doing about it? Well, in Genesis 12, he went to this couple 
just kind of your generic Middle Eastern couple. They were sheep ranchers and nomads. And he said, follow me. I've got a deal for you. I'm going to take you to a land, and I will give it to you, and then I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and then all the world will be blessed through you. you just, God's crazy project of putting it back all together was to start with this one couple and bless them so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. And there you see the heart of God once again making life happen and then nourishing life so that life flourishes and more life happens. And it begins with Abraham and Sarah. But then God wasn't finished telling them because if you read the story, Abraham and Sarah have a very hard time believing this is really true and they keep behaving funny. So God decided one more time to seal the deal and he, he, he made what they call a covenant, which is the same thing as a treaty or a business contract. And he said, so Abraham, I want you to cut up a bunch of animals and split them side by side. Now, that's kind of weird, but back in the Middle East, you literally cut a covenant. If you read the Hebrew, which is what Old Testament is written in, you can't make a covenant, you can only cut a covenant. Because literally what would happen, and we'll use a, a military treaty as an example, is, you know, the victorious general would, would call the losing, the, the, the losing general together and say, now, cut up some animals, lay them side by side, and then walk through them and say, may this happen to me if for some reason this treaty is broken, no matter who breaks it. And that's what the losers had to do. Same thing would be true in a business deal, is the more powerful person made the weaker person do the same thing, so that however the contract was broken, the weaker person had to pay for it. So what does God do? Does he make Abraham and Sarah walk through this? Nope. He causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep, and when Abraham wakes up, he sees this big old smoking pot spinning between the two of them and a flaming torch going through them and he senses this is God and he discovers what God is saying to him is that God is saying, I'll take responsibility for this covenant, this treaty, this business contract, this friendship. I'll take responsibility that no matter who breaks it, I'll pay the price to put it back together. Now, once again, we get a, a sense of the heart of God that God has taken on the consequences if we break the covenant which is really, really weird. This is a very strange God. And then he's not finished yet. He's got one more way to bring it on home that this is God's covenant and it's not about us trying to keep it together. You see, with, with all the other gods and goddesses roaming around in the Middle East, the people who had to keep it together were the worshipers. And often what would happen is the worshipers would sacrifice their firstborn child and as a way to keep the covenant together. So God says to Abraham, take your son Isaac, your only son, and kill him for me, will you? Now, Abraham and Sarah were utterly destroyed. They were grieving, they were wrecked, they were despairing, but there's one thing they weren't, and that was surprised. Why? Because they were expecting it had to come sooner or later, just like all the other gods and goddesses would demand it. Certainly this God would demand it too. So Abraham takes Isaac on a journey. They go up to a mountain. He lays Isaac out on the top of an altar and just as ready he's to kill him, business as usual. God stops him and says, no, it's mine to keep this covenant together, not yours. I have supplied a ram, a male sheep that, will, that you can sacrifice and I will provide the sacrifice. I will keep the covenant together. And God is saying in the strongest terms possible, this is not business as usual. I will never require that you kill your children for me. I will never require that you keep the covenant together because I will keep the covenant together no matter what. And all the way through the life of Old Testament Israel, when they made sacrifices, it was never to keep the covenant together. It was to experience the God who was keeping it together for them. 
Think of that. That is the kind of God we had. Because God says, no matter what happens, I will assume responsibility. I will pay the price to keep it together. Well, here comes fast forward up to the back end of Genesis and into Exodus, and we discover there's a little problem. You see, what's happened is Abraham and Sarah have formed this family. They've had children, and this family's gotten bigger into a clan, and then the clan has turned into a tribe, and the tribe has turned to a nation, and they're all in Egypt, and they're getting better and better, and God is blessing them, and they're making a ton of money. And the Egyptians don't mind it because apparently they're really good citizens until one pharaoh, an Egyptian emperor, it says in the Bible there was a certain pharaoh who knew not Joseph because Joseph had been one of the great, 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 great sons who had led by God's hand the people of Israel into Egypt. And he'd been a hero because he'd been a prime minister of Egypt. And this particular pharaoh either didn't know about him or didn't care. In fact, he looked at these Hebrews, these Israelites, and he decided they were a threat to national security. So he had a plan. He was going to work them to death through slavery, and he was going to kill all the baby boys. Boy, that sounds like a covenant breaker. There's no Israel to keep covenant with. They're all dead. What's God going to do? Well, he raises up a very unlikely hero named Moses. Moses was, through God's care, um, brought into the royal family, and he was actually raised in the palace. But around age 40, he was off to a great start. He up and killed someone. Well, he had to hightail it out of Egypt with the police on his tail. And God took him for 40 years of character school. And when he was ready, God brought him back, and he took on Pharaoh and said, let my people go. The only problem was Pharaoh was stubborn, he was prideful, and he was a bit crazy. And Pharaoh kept saying no, and God kept saying, well, if you say no, I will bring a plague. And each time it got nastier and nastier, and Pharaoh said, over my dead body, and Moses basically said, as you wish. And finally Pharaoh relented after Egypt was wrecked and said, please, leave before anything worse happens to the empire. Go! And God said, we're going to go, but we're going to eat a meal before we go. And this was a very special meal, and it was called the Passover. Why was that? Because every Hebrew family was instructed to take a lamb, kill the lamb, prepare it for a meal, and then with the blood of the lamb, put it on the top of the doorpost to signal that God would pass over them. Not unlike what he had done with Egypt. Because Egypt had been judged, the Israelites would be passed over in judgment and instead they would be delivered. But then two other elements, so that's a key element, the symbol of the lamb, that they would be passed over, they would be saved. The second symbol was the bread, what they call matzah, or sometimes it's called the bread of haste, and it was baked without leavening. In other words, that's flatbread. And why? The first symbol reason why is because they were on the go. They were getting ready for a journey. They were going to leave the slavery of Egypt and certain death that would, would await them if they stayed and into the land of promise, into the land of freedom. So they were literally eating on-the-go bread. But the second reason why is poor people couldn't afford the leavening for, for, for bread to rise. So this was also poor people's bread to symbolize the poverty that the Egyptian empire had put God's people in as they became slaves. And the third was the bread of brokenness because the bread was literally broken during Passover. And that symbolized two things. One is the brokenness of God's people because Pharaoh had broken their backs. But it also symbolized that God was going to break them out of that slavery and send them to freedom. And likewise, the wine. The wine was a symbol of freedom, of liberation, of salvation. 
of rescue. And so they ate together the lamb, a symbol of God passing over them. A symbol, they ate together the bread, the on-the-go bread that symbolized we may be poor, we may be broken, but God's going to break us free. And then they took the cup, the cup of freedom that says Egypt no more gets to decide who we are. And that was the Passover. And after that, after they ate the Passover, God sent them on the journey, what we call the Exodus. And you can hear about that all over the Old Testament. The Exodus is the biggest event in the Old Testament where God's people march out of the land of slavery, out of the land of death, out of the land of sorrow, and into the journey to freedom, to the promised land where they will be God's people, where indeed, once again, they will be blessed and all the nations will be blessed through them. That's the Exodus. And if you keep reading in the Old Testament, and to this day, whenever the Jews celebrate Passover, the host of the meal tells the story, and when they take the bread, they break and say, this is the bread of freedom. This is the bread that represented our brokenness, but God breaking us out of Egypt. This is the bread of haste, the -the on-the-go bread that symbolizes the journey we are on. And he takes the wine, the host, and would say, this is the cup of freedom. This is the cup that, that sets us free. And so let's forward now to the first century where we get closer to the Lord's Supper. That, by the way, was a Passover. And Jesus was the host of that meal. And here's where it gets really, really wild. Jesus, being the host of the meal, he took the bread and he was telling the story of the Exodus. But when he got to the bread, he did something different. As he broke it open like this, he said, this is my body. This is me. This is me. And I am going to be broken so that we can break you out of the slavery that you experience. Because in first century Israel, the Jews feel anything but free. Because several centuries before, they had been exiled into Babylon. And then a little bit later in the Persian Empire, some Jews were allowed to come back to the ruined city of Jerusalem, but it was still in a province of Persia. And then the Greeks took over, and for 50 brief years they were free, but then the Romans came in, and they took over. And here they are in the first century, where the life expectancy is 31 years, and the Romans are brutal, and there's a king on the throne in Israel, but he's not a Jew, and he's a tyrant. And the priests are corrupt and oppressing the people and extorting them. And the Pharisees, who started out to be a renewal movement all about grace, have turned into the thought police. And the best way to understand them is hundreds of church ladies chasing you. (laughs) And that's what the Jews are suffering under, plus all their brokenness. And Jesus says, I am the bread that will be broken for you to set you free. And then a little while later in in the supper, he takes the cup of freedom. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant and I will put it together so radically, I will pay the price to put it back together so radically, the only way we can describe it is new. It's better than the first one. You ever seen a restored car? A really good restored car? Doesn't look better than when it rolled out of the showroom? That's the covenant. It's better than the first one. And he said, I will free you. I will free you. And I can just imagine the disciples, they're thinking about this and going, huh? What? 
Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. You're not blood. You're not bread. But Jesus himself has said earlier, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And I, I think they begin to re 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 recollect it and go, oh my goodness, he's not kidding. And, and, and then they look down at the food on their plate and, and the lamb they'd been eating. And then they completely freaked out because they realized John the Baptist had pointed to Jesus a couple of years earlier and said, look, there is the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, who will set his people free. And at that point, they had a complete meltdown. Oh my goodness, this one will set us free. This one who we are encountering in his supper is our freedom. He is the on-the-go bread. He is the bread that breaks us free. He is the cup of liberation. Jesus indeed is God's answer to everything that has gone wrong with the world. Jesus is God's answer to the pain in the world. So what do you need to be freed from? What is that thing that is enslaving you? What is that thing that will kill you, like Egypt was trying to kill off God's people? In this meal, God is your freedom. In this meal, because God's word is proclaimed, Jesus shows up, and he offers you forever forgiveness of sins. He offers you a forever friendship, a life that lasts forever. And he wants to change your life starting now. This is what he wants for you. In exchange for your brokenness, he wants to give you his life. I'm wondering if you can go back a couple slides, back to um, the words of the Lord's Supper. And I want to do something to, a little different today. And uh, I have to keep my notes in front of me so I can read with you. I want us to read that story together again right before we take the Lord's Supper. Got that up there? Here we go. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We continue. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, when we encounter God in his supper, we encounter a taste of God's kingdom. So let's pray for that kingdom as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.